0: Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. From John to Justin, which looks at every single Prime Minister in Canadian history. Right now, I'm on part two, looking at every opposition leader who never became Prime Minister, and it releases every single Friday. I have Coast to Coast, which is the building of the Transcontinental Railway, and it releases every single Thursday. And of course, every single Sunday, Canada's Great War, which looks at Canada during the First World War. I do all of these podcasts full-time. I do the writing, the research, everything. So, any dollar you give helps keep all of it going. As well, if you give 5-star reviews, I'll read those 5-star reviews on the air. If you like, you can email me at craig at CanadaEHX.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Williams Lake currently lies within the traditional territory of the Sewap Ma, and evidence of Indigenous habitation in the region dates back at least 4,000 years, with some estimates going back as far as 6,500 years. The region was also inhabited by the Chilcotin and the Take, who helped create a unique cultural landscape. The Sipwup Ma are part of the interior Salish people, who inhabited the central and southern portion of British Columbia. The local band of the Sipwup Ma once inhabited the area where Williams Lake is now, but they were pushed off the land as gold prospectors came in during the Fraser Gold Rush. The Chukkutin inhabited land that stretched from the coast mountains to the Fraser River, and they would operate long-distance trade networks that brought salmon from the coast to nearly the interior of what would one day be Alberta. The indigenous of the area were part of a large distance trading network that would bring salmon in and other items, and this allowed the local indigenous to live in abundance through the years. The Take inhabited the area north of Prince George, east of N'Chako country and south to the Fraser River. They would share territory with other indigenous becoming part of the trading network that thrived through the area. For the indigenous in the region, they had a network of temporary camps and village sites that surrounded permanent winter villages. This created a web of interaction and connection with the land and the people. Depending on the availability of resources, camps would often move between well-established hunting plant harvesting, fishing, ceremonial, and trading sites. The migration of wildlife and the ripening of berries played an important role in where the indigenous would settle for a time. Knowledge of the landscape, its plants and animals would be passed down through the families over the centuries. Hunters would also walk great distances to hunt moose and deer. As with other indigenous groups who hunted large game, very little of the moose and deer was wasted. The meat was eaten, and the hide was tanned for clothing and to make drums. The first Europeans to come through the area were explorers and fur traders who wanted to take advantage of the ample wildlife and resources found in the area. Very little in the way of Europeans or Canadians would come into the region over the course of the next century, but things would change in 1860 when the Caribou Gold Rush began. The Gold Rush would bring in many British and Canadian prospectors who wanted to find their fortune. For the Williams Lake area, two trails led to the goldfields in the south. One was the Douglas Road and the other went through the Fraser Canyon. And these two trails met right where Williams Lake is, and that resulted in a growing number of settlers and merchants choosing to set up in the area. With more people settling at these crossroads, Gold Commissioner Philip Henry Nind built a government house and requested the funds from the government to build a jail to house the most unruly of the individuals living in the area and passing through. William Pinchbeck would come in as a constable, arriving from Victoria and providing law and order to the community. Pinchbeck didn't just enforce the law in the area, though. He also built a roadhouse, a saloon, and a store while also buying up large portions of the valley on the anticipation that the region would continue to grow in population. At the same time, he fulfilled the role of being the justice of the peace, lawyer, judge, and jailer. He also built a horse racing track that drew large crowds, with stakes going as high as $100,000, a fortune at the time. It would be logical to then assume that given his many roles in the area, that Williams Lake was named for him. Well, it's not. Williams Lake is actually named for a local chief named William, who prevented the Shishwap people from joining in the Indigenous uprising against the settler population during the Chilcotin War in 1864 that was fought between the Chilcotin people and white road construction workers. Sadly, the hope for the small community of growing into a major centre were dashed in 1863. At the time, the belief was that the sense of community was an important crossroads on the trails, that the new Caribou Road would go through the community, establishing it as a trading centre. Instead, Gustavus Blinn Wright, the road builder, completely bypassed Williams Lake, and instead built through 150 Mile House. This change would be devastating to the community, and many felt that Wright was changing the route to benefit himself since he owned a roadhouse that was along the route. That would be the end of the community, for a time. It would not be until 1919 when the community would rise again, this time thanks to the Pacific Great Eastern Railway, which was built through the area, arriving in the middle of September of that year. The Vancouver Daily World would report on September 16, 1919, quote: According to the telegraphic advices received at the Parliament buildings from Chief Engineer Proctor, steel was laid on the Pacific Great Eastern system as far as Williams Lake at 11 o'clock yesterday morning. This would once again fuel growth in the community, and it was also in that year that the first Williams Lake Stampede would be held. In the early years, the stampede was a place for local men and women to show off their rodeo talents. The first stampede was little more than a get-together for the locals and railway crews who were in the area. That first stampede was organized by Joe Fleiger, and consisted mostly of saddle bronc, bareback, and steer riding, along with a horse race. Not only was this the first stampede in Williams Lake, but by all accounts, it was one of the first stampedes held in British Columbia, if not the first. By 1921, the stampede had gone from a one-day event to a three-day event, and people were arriving from across the West to participate. For the stampede that year, 3,500 people arrived, and the Vancouver province would report, quote, Ten months ago, when the writer stepped off the construction train here, he was greeted with a vision of autumn-hued hills and a small construction camp of four tents. Today, he finds himself in the midst of a rapidly developing little town. A stampede on more pretentious lines will be staged each year, along with a two- or three-day program of horse racing and athletics. A natural amphitheater beautifully set at the north end of Williams Lake, and only a five-minute walk from the town has also been chosen. End quote. Throughout the 1920s, a highlight of the stampede was a downhill race which went for two kilometers down a steep hill. The race was extremely dangerous to the point that by 1929, only six racers signed up and women were forbidden from competing. As time went on, the rodeo continued to grow until today, when it's the second largest rodeo in Canada after the Calgary Stampede. Many of the same rodeo performers go to the Williams Lake Stampede and then on to the Calgary Stampede, which typically follows the following week. The Stampede would stop in 1939 and take a break of eight years due to the Second World War, but it would return in 1947. It would again not be held in 2020 and 2021 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I've spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of Explornet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, Explornet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, Explornet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. Around the same time that the Stampede was hitting high gear in 1930, a unique house was built in Williams Lake. Known locally as the Potato House, This house is located at 49 Borland Street and features an extensive rear yard area and mature fruit trees along with a beautiful stone wall and wooden gates. The house was built by the Borkowski brothers who were not trained as carpenters but learned how to build the house through borrowed books. The property was purchased by a new owner in 1956 and this owner established a market garden on the property that would become an iconic part of the community. The garden mostly grew potatoes and the residents of the area began to call the home the Potato House. In 2012 the house was purchased by the Potato House Sustainable Community Society and turned into a centre for the promotion of community agriculture and sustainability. Today it continues to serve as a community garden and in 2015 became a municipal heritage property. On July 21, 1939, the residents of Williams Lake were awoken to two huge explosions that rocketed through the sky. Many were scared awake, and as they rushed outside, they saw a flaming meteor that, quote, was more dazzling than the sun, end quote. It was believed at the time that the Earth was moving through a comet tail that had been seen by humans in 1866. It was also believed that two meteorites hit the nearby countryside, one falling near Brighouse that was seen by fishermen, and one fell into the water not far from shore. Many residents of Williams Lake raced into the streets after hearing the bangs, which were reportedly followed by 40 to 50 smaller bangs until they tapered off to a rumble. Around the 1960s and into the 1970s, a notable Canadian would spend their youth in Williams Lake. Rick Hansen was born in Port Alberni, but he would grow up in Williams Lake Where he was active in sports including volleyball softball baseball and basketball on june 27 1973 rick was on a fishing trip when he was involved in a car accident that resulted in his being paralyzed from the waist down hansen would work on his rehabilitation and would become the first student with a physical disability to graduate from the university of british columbia inspired by terry fox and his courage Hansen decided to take his own journey to prove the potential of people with disabilities. His plan was to circle the world in his wheelchair.
1: Right now, Rick Hansen joins us from our Vancouver studio. Rick, it's the most obvious question, but why on earth are you doing this?
2: <clears throat> well, I think you have to understand me personally. I've always been involved uh, helping people. Um, I've always wanted to contribute physical education is my profession. And I know what it's like to go through a spinal injury and I know what the difference of having programs and having medical treatment and support and you know, how that can really affect people in their uh, spinal injuries and getting back into the mainstream of life. And uh, it's my way of contributing. It's my way of uh, making uh, an impact for these programs for spinal research and for helping other people.
1: Why the, the journey, the traveling approach? Did you have any sense that this has been done? It's being done by Terry. It's being done by Steve Fonio well,
2: Terry's a good friend of mine uh... he believed in giving a hundred percent of himself to um, achieving a dream uh... to help uh... find a cure for cancer research uh... myself i believe that it's very important to help here in canada but the need is not just confined to canada it's confined to the entire world uh... it's the only way i know how to bring the message across to the world that there needs to be some sort of uh continued effort and more support to elevate spinal research and to help people in wheelchairs.
0: On March 21st, 1985, he left from Oak Ridge Mall in Vancouver and for the next 26 months he would log 40,075 kilometres through 34 countries on four continents before arriving back in Canada. On April 2nd, 1987, Hanson would arrive back in his hometown of Williams Lake and the community gave him $200,000 towards his fundraising goal, which was equal to what Prince George, a city five times the size, raised. On May 22, 1987, he would arrive back in Vancouver as a Canadian hero, having raised $26 million for spinal cord research and quality of life initiatives. The song, St. Elmo's Fire, was written in his honour, and several items from his Man in Motion World Tour are now in the BC Sports Hall of Fame and a museum. Good evening. He
2: defied all the odds, the long, exhausting hours, the tortuous climbs through mountain ranges, the numbing cold of a prairie winter, the pain that shot through his arms and his shoulders at the end of the day, and the road before him so long that it stretched all around the world. But nothing stopped Rick Hansen. He triumphed, circling the world to raise money for those like him who are trapped in wheelchairs. Today, with cheering crowds filling the streets of Vancouver, Hansen finally ended his Man in Motion Marathon. Jane Chalmers reports.
1: The E4 finish at last, a yellow ribbon at the spot in a Vancouver shopping mall where Rick Hansen began and ended his global journey. 40,000 kilometers and 26 months later, a triumphant Hansen is home.
2: I want to thank you for believing in the potential of disabled persons because we all have hopes and dreams.
1: Behind Hansen, today and every day, the team that kept him going felt both excitement and exhaustion. It's very overwhelming and it's hard to express and put it into words because there's so many emotions that come and go in waves. Vancouver's welcome home was huge, often overwhelming. Thousands of people, covered in yellow ribbons and balloons, cheered the wheelchair marathoner through the home stretch. I almost uh, think I'm in
2: a dream or something. This is unbelievable. This is fantastic. All I can say is thanks very much to everybody who's been part
1: of this. Hanson's usually controlled emotions finally broke loose, freeing his joy of once again meeting the parents of an old friend. Terry Fox, his satisfaction as big corporate donations flooded in, $204,400, satisfaction as the little people proudly presented their gifts.
0: Following his round-the-world journey, he would establish the Hansen Foundation in 1988, and for the past 30 years, it has helped countless people with their disabilities. Hansen is a member of the Terry Fox Hall of Fame. Canada's Sports Hall of Fame, Canada's Walk of Fame, and he's received the Order of Canada. In addition, four schools have been named for him, and he's received an astounding 14 honorary degrees. Over the course of this episode, I've covered a lot about the history of the community of Williams Lake. If you want to learn more about the history of the community and the area, then the best place to visit is the Caribou Chakotin Museum, also known as the Cowboy Museum. Inside, you will find the British Columbia Cowboy Hall of Fame and exhibits that look at the history of the indigenous in the area, the railway mining, medical, and forestry industries. The museum also features many photos and artifacts from the past 150 years of the area. Admission is free and donations are accepted. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Williams Lake. Next week, I'll be looking at Drayton Valley, Alberta. If you enjoyed the episode please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden. Doug Campbell, Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Lori Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Row, Luke Guess, JP Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com canadianhistoryx. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D, And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.